Hello, welcome back to the Film Geek Collective. Today we're going to be studying musicals. By studying, I mean having a hell of a lot of fun. This is an explicit podcast, so keep that in mind. We're going to have some fucking fun researching these musicals, these fantastic, miraculous works of art in themselves. And we're going to give shout-outs to... Oh, wait a minute. Let me do the shout-outs in a very special way. I'm going to do a shout-out to... Tessie Cat and Mary Amber and that Patrick guy in Real Sharks, Ashy Slashy and Elsie Cool. And that is who I'm gonna do the shout outs to. I sound like a jazz singer of some sort. Ah, who am I? Who, who am I fucking getting, man? I. <laughs> I just thought I'd have a bit of fun with the intro. Okay, let's get right into it. <laughs> Musicals. The first one I'm going to mention is Beauty and the Beast. The animated version is exquisite, with the Emma Watson remake serving as a decent adaptation. The original will always be better in this case, compared to it being a cover of a song. Sorry, compare it to being a cover of a song that's superior in its original form. Like, you know, Disney tunes have been covered so many times now that I don't need to tell you about the umpteenth artist who wants to cover it, you know. Everyone knows the story, so we don't need repeating here. The tale as old as time has lasted for that long, and we all know no one fights like us on reviews like the Film Geek Collective. Uh, shameless plug there, you know. I'm only kidding around with you guys, it's all good. Yes, no one fights like us on. So yeah, that was back in the early... 90s, maybe late 80s, but yeah, my second one that I really love, okay, is personally I consider the Disney princess stuff to be a little overhyped, just a little bit, except for Tangled, I like Tangled. The best Disney animated film to me is The Lion King, which I can't believe I forgot to put on this, on, in this uh, presentation, you know, (coughs) but Yeah, about Greece. Is Greece still the word? Yes, yes it is. And you know that ain't no shit. Go Grease Lightning! This is simply one of my favourite musicals due to its simplicity, its catchy tunes, its musical numbers, and all the jokes I just did not get when I was younger. You don't know what sloppy seconds mean till you're 13! John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John captured lightning in a bottle that could not be replicated. Freakin' eh? Bit of trivia for this one. Every scene filmed in the gym where the dance occurs, the gym was absolutely boiling. You know, and also it was as boiling as the set of The Shining. People were sweating, you know, they had to, I think they had to take out a few people between texts. I mean, yeah, overall though, this has some interesting behind the scenes stories. But also, the deleted scenes for this film exist inexplicably only in black and white. And I'm honestly not sure why. Maybe it's duplicate negatives? Who knows? But DVD, at least, has only black and white forms of these scenes. So yeah, if anyone wanted to colorize them, you know, that's the one time I'd accept colorization only as an experiment. I generally don't like colorizing movies, you know? But let's move on to a more modern one. The Greatest Showman. A uh, a more modern major musical provides entertainment magical and memorable. Uh, more major, <coughs> fuck. A more ma- 
Oh, fuck. Let me try again. A more modern major musical provides entertainment magical and memorable. Uh, you know what I mean. You know what, you know what I'm getting at, okay? It's not the greatest show, contrary to the title, but with Hugh Jackman, Zac Efron, Zendaya, and the circus, how can you go wrong? It's one of the more entertaining modern musicals about P.T. Barnum, an historical figure in the business of circus attractions. My favourite thing about this movie is that Zendaya did her own trapeze stunts for real, adding authenticity to the dance numbers, as expertly choreographed on a large scale. Hugh Jackman did his best to bring it all to life, with the same songwriters as La La Land, mentioned later. So yeah, moving on now to uh, another one that I quite recommend. I never saw the original of this one, but yeah, let me give you a brief history on Hairspray. Not the product, obviously. You know what I mean. It's a musical episode. Not originally a musical, but after the smash hit success of the stage musical, everyone was singing Good Morning Baltimore. This 2007 adaptation of a musical adapted from John Waters, that guy, yes, who directed Pink Flamingos, only family-friendly movie. Yeah, that John Waters is set in the 1950s and features main character Tracy Turnblad in an effort to end racism and get onto a variety hour. You also get John Travolta in drag, let alone John Travolta in the same movie as Christopher Walken for the first time since Pulp Fiction. And hey, this time they share scenes. Isn't that worth something? But uh, overall, it's actually a pretty entertaining flick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know... It just goes to show when people go too far with things, you know, why I honestly cannot fathom why racism is a thing. Honestly, it is cringeworthy, it is vile, and it is just a miserable thing. (sighs) But we keep fighting and we will all be equal. Now, finally... Uh, no, sorry, not finally. I've got a few to go. I've got a lot to go, actually. <laughs> Into the Woods. This movie is rather mature for a children's film, in a good way, that is. You know, like, the house with a clock in its walls or Coraline. Kids are not condescended to, but this particular one's for older kids, from a play that's apparently even worse. This adapts fairy tales and puts a dark spin on them, including with Little Red Riding Hood, a creepy variation on the big bad wolf, Cinderella, and some others. You don't expect a family film to go to places this does, but let's just say this remains more true to the fairy tales as they were, rather than as Disney portrays fairy tales, you know? Disney hasn't pulled this type of shit since Return to Oz! Recommended and underrated. And number six, I mentioned this in the Greatest Showman entry. <coughs> this is, <coughs> basically, this is like a lowdown on a bunch of musicals you may or may not have seen. And I hope to give you a bit of trivia about some of them. So, yeah, please stick around if you want to learn even more. So, La La Land is a throwback to the cine- Cinemascope musicals of the 1950s, even sharing the same aspect ratio for tech buffs, it's 255 to 1. That is, the same wide shape of canvas, the colourful, vibrant musical is partial reconstruction and partial deconstruction in a way that I reckon is better done than Martin Scorsese's New York, New York, which I didn't really care for. I'm sorry, but I normally love Scorsese's work, but that film just didn't appeal to me. 
<sighs> but we're talking about La La Land here. Can I just call it Triple L so I don't, you know, accidentally slow the words up? <laughs> yeah, so... That Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone are the lovely young couple here, and if not for the modern technology and breaking the Hayes Code, could have been from that decade. <coughs> mm, shit, let me clear that out. <clears throat> There's a shot in the pool itself that's partially an homage to Boogie Nights of all things, with a similar shot underwater and following people swimming through a pool... For those who have seen Boogie Nights, you'll remember when there's that long shot at the party and they dunk the camera underwater and you see the legs of various people swimming around in this pool before it goes back out again. Well, Triple L is one of those shots. Uh, okay, I'll stop calling it Triple L. <laughs> you know what I mean, okay? Ultimately, the retro vibe of this film will help it go down in history. Not too dated and not too modern, it is the perfect balance. I love retro aesthetics. They just appeal to me, okay? They just appeal. They endure. And, you know, it's a nice break from things I don't like in modern movies, like overuse of shaky cam, which this film is none of, you know? La La Land usually features takes over 30 seconds, which is rare these days. In the olden days, you'd have the master shot, mainly. They would cut to other angles, but the master shot was basically trying to cover all the angles in one camera swoop. Not swoop exactly, but it's like a dance around the actors, around with the blocking, you know? Like, you'd get a, you'd get an over-the-shoulder of character A, but then you could move to the side of the characters, facing left and right toward each other, and whatever, and you'd get then a, uh, um, I'd say a medium shot? Like, maybe even an American shot, just showing the knees and above, who knows? But yeah, that's what that is. Oh, and just one thing. For those of you who troll by giving shitty personal attacks on Twitter for one measly opinion that does not affect you, fuck you. Haven't you got anything better than to belittle and degrade for something that's not personal? Personal attacks for a fucking opinion. I cannot cannot sympathize with bullies. I just hate them. And I swear, I just, yeah, let's move on. I don't want to be too negative. Yeah, fuck them. Little Shop of Horrors is the next one that I'm going to cover. Moving on to another movie musical that, like Hairspray, was not originally a musical, but a 1960 film initially entitled The Passionate People Eater, later renamed to The Little Shop of Horrors. This, in turn, was made into an off-Broadway musical, if not an off-off-Broadway musical initially, in 1982. Gotta catch my breath sometimes. Sorry about that with music composed by Alan Menken, who also responsible for The Little Mermaid, and lyrics by Howard Ashman. Four years later, Frank Oz directed the movie adaptation of this musical, and it initially underperformed, according to Warner Brothers, who was distributing it for Jeffen at the time. This was even after the ending was changed from what it was in the original play, due to poor test screenings. However... VHS and Betamax sales helped it gain back money. It did not exactly flop, but Jeffen did not consider it to light the box office on fire either. Jeffen, if you don't know, was a company that released music and movies, and is one predecessor, sorry, shit, predecessor, to the company DreamWorks SKG. 
S for Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, K for Katzenberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and G for Jeffen, David Jeffen. They produced films like this, Beetlejuice and The Last Boy Scout, and most of their library is now owned by Warner Brothers, with the exception of Beavis and Butthead Do America, owned by Paramount, who owns MTV, who owns the Beavis and Butthead series, and its related spin-off Daria. <coughs> I'm probably giving some of you nostalgia vibes right here. <laughs> Little Shop of Horrors also made DVD history in 1998, as it was the first DVD to be recalled for content. You see, all the time, the director's cut ending, then unfinished, was attached to this particular l- release. It was in black and white, and missing some of the visual, special, and sound effects. This version of the ending, which David Jeffen commented looks like shit, was gone within days. However, in 2012 for the director's cut Blu-ray, the now completed ending saw the light of day, and in colour too! This somewhat overlooked film deserves to be seen. If you can, search out both versions. Just know the intended stage ending is on the director's cut. Alright, next we're going on to the Nightmare Before Christmas. We have this stop-motion delight that can be viewed at either Halloween or Christmas. It just can't be decided upon when to view it. Jack Skellington simply wants to terrorise neighbourhoods. To terrorise y'all neighbourhood. In the words of the famous Vincent Price. But he runs into various problems. And then there's Mad Scientists, a clown, and a delightful assortment of strange and wonderful characters. Life's no fun without a good scare, and this would make a great starter pick for spookiness, suitable for brave young children. And since, as of recording, it's close to this cheerful Christmas season, why not give it a spin? The same director would later adapt James and the Giant Peach and Coraline. You know, Marilyn Manson actually covered This Is Halloween from The Nightmare Before Christmas once. That's worth checking out. Next, we got the very underrated, overlooked, oh so overlooked, that Phantom of the Paradise. This one, directed by Brian De Palma, famous director of such films like Carrie and Scarface, was inspired to create this underseen gem when he heard the Beatles' A Day in the Life over elevator speakers. Uh, you can imagine how fucking sad commercialism is getting now, let alone back then, so Brian De Palma thought he'd make his own critique on it. Made in 1974, this was originally a flop, but some of the best movies were flops. If you don't succeed, try again. That's the motto, even if you do flop. It's a Wonderful Life and the Iron Giant. Hell, even The Wizard of Oz, these are three examples, but this comedy horror deals with a man whose face is crushed in a record-pressing machine, not in the really realistic Gaspineau sort of way, but, you know, it forces him to don a helmet and try to reclaim his stolen music. Grand and yet still charmingly low budget, which I love in itself, this cult classic was homaged in The Simpsons in Guillermo del... I can't pronounce his first name, but Mr. Del Toro's intro for Trias of Horror 24, very briefly, on The Simpsons. This seems to be a personal story for De Palma on some level, making it better. The story may not be the best you've seen, but damn it if you don't have some fun. And that's the hell of it. And let's get started on the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh man, oh man, oh man, I just love this movie to pieces. In the mid-1970s, this was paired with Phantom of the Paradise mentioned before. Again, Rocky Horror was a flop initially, but 
<laughs> that didn't stop it from holding a record it still holds today. The longest running theatrical release in existence ever since it released in the USA on the 14th of August 1975. A different set of jaws, the advertising promised. And the film is more of an experience than a story, but not in the 2001 A Space Odyssey sort of way. The story is deliberately basic and it's all about the music. Midnight screenings are held with anticipation. Fans of the film will get that. You see, I adore this movie with all my heart, and some days I can't decide whether my favourite musical's Grease or the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Now, if you just want weird fun, you shall receive it in abundance. It's a shameless homage to B-movies of Richard O'Brien's youth and involves the basic plot of a car breaking down and the young couple inside that car visiting a castle which is full of rich weirdos and supposedly looks like a hunting lodge who are strange and just get stranger. We're all lucky to have this film. I'm lucky. You're lucky. We're all lucky. (laughs) On the other hand, one minor thing. If Frankenfurter promises a mental mindfuck, that's redundant. I mean, come on, a mindfuck is mental. It is mental. What does a mindfuck mean to him? Now next, we go on to something not nearly, like, something that's not sexually charged in the least. Unlike the Rocky Horror Picture Show. This classic 1950s musical, Singing in the Rain. Let me clear something up first. The rain's not mixed with milk, it's just really well hidden backlighting. Now, this is set when sound is just coming in. A period piece for the 1950s, set in the 1920s. It's a a musical that's essentially Hollywood backstage dealings, only made intensely entertaining. I mean, I still love Birdman, but, you know, singing in the rain is a lot of fun. Debbie Reynolds is in this film. For those who don't know, she's actually the mother of Carrie Fisher. And what's more, every song here has existed before. Not one originally made for the film, making it a jukebox musical in the tradition of Trolls and Rock of Ages. So yeah, (laughs) it's still a classic, this one, with the vibrant Technicolor sets. Now next is, uh, let me see if you can guess this one. I walked with you, I walked with you once upon a dream. Ah, yes. Many of us have imagined sleeping in, but not this much. This charming little small town or thing, small castle, whatever. Anyway, this charming little fairy tale has all your usual Disney cliches, but that doesn't matter when you have such an iconic villain in the form of Maleficent, who got her own decent spin-off, by the way. This was one of the later films in Walt Disney's career, and he died in 1966, two years after Mary Poppins. His last animated film he contributed towards was The Jungle Book in 1967. 1967. But Sleeping Beauty represented his continuous experimentation with traditional animation stretching the boundaries so far, his company lives on today. Who would have thought to use CinemaScope in animation? This guy. Alright, next we're moving on to an especially historical one in Disney's back catalogue. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Disney is a company that started with Walt Disney himself, creating content for RKO. 
Despite the fact that Walt Disney Pictures continued to grow, films from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in 1937 to The Rescuers in 1977 were produced in partnership with RKO, but not every film from this period went through RKO. This partnership became less frequent in the 1960s. Still, when RKO released Snow White, it was the first feature-length animated film ever made, and in three-strip Technicolor. That means green does not look blue. Snow White is as much the foundation for Disney as Freddy Krueger was for the growing New Line cinema. After such enduring tunes came out of this, like, uh, Just whistle while you work, la 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 la. Yeah, such enduring tunes. I swear, Disney's full of those. But we've also gladly come a long way with this film. The princesses have stopped screaming, Oh, help me, I need a prince to save me. I can't get out of this predicament myself. Oh, gee, I don't know what to do. Ah! Well, yes. <laughs> gladly, we have stronger female characters as time goes on. But keeping in mind the era which it was made, you know, it's understandable. You know? I'm not going to excuse it or anything, but... It shows that we have come a long way. So, next we have up The Sound of Music. We all know The Sound of Music. Older generations grew up with it on TV. Saw it every year in dreaded pan and scan form, but still, you saw it every year. This uh, film was filmed using a uh, 70mm film stock, which the native aspect ratio is 220 to 1, much like you'd see Black Mirror in in Season 5, if you have Netflix. I'm sure a lot of you have Netflix and have probably seen at least one Black Mirror episode. But yeah. So, the 10 minutes shy of 3 hours, this epic concerns a true story about the Von Trapp family, a new nanny, and learning to love music in wartime Austria. Everybody should see this, as it's the only schmaltz I can stand. I think I did mention in an earlier episode how I absolutely hate Touched by an Angel. I cannot let that grudge go. I am sorry. They play piano music at the wrong times. They play it really loudly and obnoxiously. You know. Now, I'm personally religious myself. You know, I'm not going to discriminate or anything. I'm not. I'm not totally crazy or anything. But I... Yeah... Just shows, Christian shows, like Touched by an Angel, really get on my nerves. Because they seem to just do it all wrong to me. Now, moving on from that, the sound of music has none of that. The musical numbers could be seen as a tiny bit schmaltzy, you know? But, you know, as much as I hate most schmaltz, I can stand the sound of music and E.T. and films like that. Because they have substance to back it up. The schmaltz feels earned in these movies, okay? Emotion's got to feel earned in these movies, and The Sound of Music does that for me. Yeah. How I'd love to see a 70mm print of that film, honestly. It'd be great. But next, we, uh, let's see if you can guess this one. Come with me, and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look. And you'll see into your imagination. We'll begin with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory being our next movie that we mention. The film is surprisingly dark in true Royal Dahl fashion. In fact, Royal Dahl wrote the script, but it was rewritten without his consent. 
He, orig he originally wanted Spike Milligan to be Willy Wonka, not Sir Gene Wilder. Still, what we have is mostly a classic, if you skip Cheer Up Charlie, that is. And another bit of trivia that general viewers... Listeners! General listeners, I made that point a few episodes ago. May not know. Gene Wilder actually improvised the famous uh, walking with a cane, doing a front flip, basically just rolling on the ground and then getting back up again. That was all his idea. That man was a genius. He really was. I loved him in Blazing Saddles. I loved him in Young Frankenstein. I loved him in the few minutes he had in Bonnie and Clyde. And, oh man, I miss Gene Wilder so much. Yeah. So, yeah. Unfortunately, though, he uh, passed away in this decade. So, yeah. R.I.P. Gene Wilder. Also, this film notably features an unsimulated bit of uh, animal violence, violence toward animals. In the tunnel, in the boat, you know, I cannot stand to watch when animals are killed or hurt. But a chicken is decapitated for real. When you see its head get chopped off, that really happened. They obviously filmed a bit of footage of that and then put it in the movie. That's terrifying for adults with a conscience, let alone kids. Okay? Yeah, but, yeah. Honestly, I wish I could just cut that out and get on with it, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, cut the chicken bit out, obviously. Yeah, but finally, here's one that I absolutely love, and that has spawned so many covers of Somewhere Over the Rainbow, it's hard to count. The Wizard of Oz. Here's something that will shatter what you thought you knew. The Wizard of Oz was not the first film shot in colour. Instead, the first film that was not hand-coloured, but shot fully in colour, was 1929's On With The Show, a pre-Haze Code musical film released by Warner Brothers that sadly only survives in black and white. Yeah, pre-Haze Code. It's not as risky as today, pre-Haze Code, but I talked about the Haze Code briefly in one of my other podcasts. I still stand by my point, fuck the Haze Code. Yes. So, yeah, on with the show, the the first film shot in colour was called. It was shot in primitive two-tone Technicolor, making uh, greens look blue. And But that's all they really had at the time. So, it survives in black and white, and is also the first all-talking, all-colour, feature-length film. Some films used to be partially in colour, mainly hand-tinted, with one or two exceptions just before On the show, on With The Show released. You know, colour, there's also, they would tint things all in one colour sometimes. But also, yeah, it was awkward with the hand colouring these days, by today's standards. But consider what they had back then. If you wanted a thematic colour, if you wanted to make gold, yellow or orange, you could. And the rest of the image would be black and white. But that's beside the point. After these small innovations, The Wizard of Oz had the giant innovation of filming with the three-strip Technicolor. It was one of the first films to do so, if I recall correctly. Which, I usually get 99% of my knowledge right. So, here's hoping. <laughs> yeah. So, it was a break from other monochromatic formats. So, yeah, 
The matte paintings and colourful props stand out. An orange fireball. Ruby slippers. Pink clouds. A green wicked witch of the west. A pink good witch of the east. And more. Making you wish you could stay in this glorious, glorious land. This land somewhere over the rainbow. I'm pretty sure I can have snippets of these things. Fair use. This is my very favourite movie. Yes, even above Pulp Fiction. I know, right? Crazy. Ah, one that will continue to stand the test of time. Yes, even though I know the snow during one scene was asbestos. I understood that safety was neglected back then, and we know better now. And also, if any movie stars were mistreated like Judy Garland or Shirley Temple, there would be hell to pay for those people. There would be hell to pay for mistreating those actors. We have much stricter things in place to banish those motherfuckers back where they belong. Away from the set, away from the actors, and making sure all actors are treated fairly. I honestly feel very sorry for Judy Garland and Shirley Temple and that. <sighs> so sad. They also made such great masterpieces. Judy Garland... Uh, in The Wizard of Oz has an amazing performance. In fact, yeah, these days I'm pretty sure that something like the Tin Man being allergic to his makeup would be looked over more carefully than it was in 39. MGM was really insensitive when the first actor said that it, he was allergic to the makeup, and the first actor ultimately had to be replaced. But yeah, we know better now, and ethics are mostly better on movie sets, but we are still improving. And if we are improving, that is a lot of what counts. We can make a better world, a better place. And hey, we are a collective. We can try to influence to make the world better. So yeah, musicals are a nice break from reality, but can also help us confront fantasy through reality. Mu musical episodes, however, can be hit or miss, with the exception of one in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, an excellent, excellent show that's highly recommended, but make sure you watch it in order, okay? Honestly, I love that show. <laughs> Supposedly Xena has one, but I never saw the Xena musical episode. <laughs> so yeah, I was going to go into music-themed films, films with great soundtracks, musical moments in movies... Um, but I'm not sure I have time for that right now. So, yeah, I'm going to finish off by saying there's the worst musicals section, in my opinion. Now, I love the first Grease. I love it. But Grease 2, I just... <laughs> it's hilariously terrible to me, you know? And then there's one that makes Grease 2 look like a fucking masterpiece, which is uh, Can't Stop the Music with the village people, which, while that features good music, although I Love You to Death will be stuck in my head, and it's awfully repetitive, that song, you know, Can't Stop the Music is absolutely hilariously terrible, like Plan 9 from Outer Space is for cheap sci-fi films. Of course, yeah. <laughs> there, was, or, there are also some great musical numbers in things like Family Guy, The Simpsons, Adventure Time... You know, Seth MacFarlane loves to show off his voice in Family Guy, and damn, he is amazing at it. Yeah. So, I'm sorry, no copyright infringement was intended. To be fair, though, listeners, I stopped giving a shit about copyright for this episode. And besides, this is fair use, like I said, not copyright infringement. You know? <laughs> so, I'm now going to finish this up. 
so that I can publish it on time and have a good rest and check Twitter and all that. So I'm going to give some shout outs again and I hope you're proud of yourselves because you deserve it. And the fact I'm shouting you out, honestly, you guys are great and the rest of the collective is great. But shout outs to the following people. Shoutouts again to Tessie Cat, Mary Amber, That Patrick Guy, Real Sharks, aka Riru Shaku, Ashy Slashy, and LC Cool. That's right, because you are all cool. Cool with an E or cool without it. <laughs> I don't care how you spell cool, but you are cool. See you on the other side. See you next podcast, alright? <laughs> You're always welcome in the Film Geek Collective. And don't you forget it, alright? <laughs>